You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projections as smicha is about to start. But first, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now here's the projectionist, Hasmicha. Enjoy. Clear the aisles. The projectionist has Smicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzka Kolakowski and two special guests. We have with us Dr. Sam Juni from Yerushalayim, who many of you know from this platform as the co-host of Standing in Two Worlds. He's here tonight because we're talking about a specific type of humor, Jewish humor, uh, Holocaust humor. Dr. Sam Juni, a psychologist living in Yerushalayim, has written groundbreaking uh, treatments about humor and Jewish humor specifically, and especially as it relates to the Holocaust. And we have Yaakov Friedman, a producer in Turner Classic Movies. He's, of course, a great friend of this program and someone that we cherish dearly. And it's Yaakov who's really the reason why tonight's program has happened, because Yaakov told me that he had just seen the 1983 remake of Ernest Lubitsch's classic To Be and Not To Be, the one that was really created and produced, not necessarily directed, though, by by Mel Brooks. Yaakov felt uh, that the film really deserves being talked about. And it got Yitzchak and myself to rewatch Lubitsch's 1942 classic and compare it, contrast it with what Brooks did in 1983. For those of you who have not seen the film, it's somewhat of a complicated screenplay plot. It goes like this. It's 1939, and uh, Poland is about to be invaded by Germany, and there is a Polish theater troupe that uh, has in it a number of uh, vain actors and actresses, and through one of the, the dalliances of the actress, the star actress of the troupe, her connection to a Polish flyer who eventually, when the invasion occurs, uh, becomes part of the British RAF's Polish division and then is sent on a mission. The dalliance 
that he has with her means that when he goes on this mission to somehow catch a turncoat spy who might threaten the whole Polish underground, he comes to her and the troop is involved in foiling the plans of the Nazis, not completely, but at least this part that would have killed out all the brave members of the Polish underground. And basically both films indicate how these actors and actresses through their savvy and through all their props are able to fool the Nazis to run circles around them and to be able to eventually in some way win some sort of victory over Hitler and his armies. It's full of various hijinks, mistaken identity. There is a pretty graphic murder that happens to the spy, to the turncoat, some surprises, confusion, and eventually a happy ending in both. The original starred uh, Jack Benny and Carol Lombard. Carol Lombard, I think, had top billing. It was, as many have noted, the last film uh, that she completed before her death. In fact, the film came out after she had died. The Brooks film, as I said, starred himself as sort of an amalgam of two characters with a lot of lines and uh, starring his wife, Anne Bancroft, who has, who has predeceased him. I want to stop there because we're going to talk more about the film in depth later. But that's basically, uh, I think, as much as we need to know. Okay, so I'll, let me just start with them getting into what I know best. Um, stereotypes. There are a number of stereotypes here that I'd like to talk about. There's the Shylock Jewish stereotype in Shakespeare, obviously, which, um, I mean, I'll critique, not based on what Mel Brooks did with it, but just on Shakespeare itself. Then there's the floozy stereotype of Van Dawson, which I found to be quite disturbing, especially for an actress of her caliber to play the slow down slut. Okay, I didn't find that exciting. And then we have the stereotype of the Nazi buffoon, which Mel Brooks um, does a good number with, which offends many people. So I will talk about their offense as well. In both films, the Shylock's speech of has not a Jew eyes features very prominently. In, in, in both films, there is a Jewish, a very obvious Jewish member of the troupe who is very desirous of playing Shylock. And in both films, you can finally is able to do that without spoiling ex- every, how he says it, but he ends up doing it in a very dramatic fashion. So a lot is spoken about, about the chance to play Shylock. The famous Shylock speech is prominent in both films. Okay, so okay, so basically the Shylock soliloquy that I call it is has not a Jew eyes, doesn't he have hands, dimensions, senses, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, warmed and cooled by, by the winter and the summer just as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? If you wrong us, shall we not seek revenge? Are we not like, like the rest of you? And he goes on and his basic thing is that um, just as Christians seek revenge, so he's going to seek revenge on trying to get this pound of flesh from Antonio, who's his adversary in all of this. Naive people see this as evidence that Shakespeare was this big tzaddik and he was foreseeing um, equality and then justice and whatever, which he wasn't. I mean, he was a bigot. My views over here, there's a fellow called Harold Bloom who wrote a book called Shakespeare, The Avenged of the Human. So my approach is basically with him that when, when Shylock does this kind of speech, He's basically, I can think of some, some, 
analogies, like the people in the Tower of Babel convincing themselves that since they know how to build, they're actually God. And what Shakespeare is trying to do is show that this Jew over here, Mr. Shylock, who basically is supposed to be just a semi-person who has a restricted range of functioning as a money lender and is uh, just a gouger of others, can actually delude himself that he's a real person and he actually can go for something which is on a very high level, which is revenge. Somehow um, Christians are supposed to turn the other cheek, but according to Shylock, he can also get to that Madrega. And it's seen almost as a craziness of this half person or quarter person who deludes himself that he can be a person and seek vengeance, which is really the domain of Christians. I don't see this at all as a um, forerunner of tendencies of equality for all, rather than just as a saying, look at this guy, he's getting too big, too big for his britches, let's cut him down. And Shakespeare proceeds to give him like a real horrible ending, which is much worse than Tevya suffers in, in the, you know, Tevya the milkman. I mean, his daughter converts, of course, and then he has to give all his money to Antonio, he becomes an evet. It's really, he, Shakespeare really gets him for trying to get out of this stereotype. So that Jewish stereotype is there and it hits home. What is it that Lubitsch and Brooks wanted by emphasizing that speech? I think you're right. They are trying to hijack what Shakespeare wrote and promote it in a different way. I mean, I'm not convinced what Brooks wanted with this. It's just a classic. He had to put it in there. Otherwise, the whole show is just stump farce. You know, he wanted <laughs> to make it a little bit respectable. I don't know what Brooks's idea is about this. The fact that he added um, one of his henchmen having tears while Shylock was going through the soliloquy. Okay, so that actually, uh, that's, to me, the tears were unnecessary. That meant, unfortunately, that you're right, that Brooks thought that he's doing this monumental um, um, flag for equality over here, trying to sneak something in that will maybe, you know, speed up the revolution of equality by two months or something. I don't know. Those tears were, ah, I wouldn't shed tears for that. I would get angry at that. Brooks didn't add that that was part of the the original film, but what Brooks did add or what was added in the in the remake was some discussion of whether or not Shakespeare was Jewish, which, you know, it's one of these urban legends that goes around and, and has had some various scholarly investigations of. You know, Yitzhak, I think Sam is right without realizing it, that both films extol what Shakespeare was. In other words, both of them, is, is you know, the, the, the famous line, Tura is doing or Bronsky is doing to Shakespeare what we're doing to Poland. There was this sense that Shakespeare represents an aspect of humanity that is is elevated, that is something to aspire to, and that the speech that Shakespeare wrote for the Shylock character is, in a way, a response to Nazism, a response to hatred, a response to that type of racism. Uh, you know, And again, if you really want to talk Shakespeare here, you have to wonder, the the screenwriter, uh, Melchior Lengil and Edwin Mayer and Lubitsch himself, you have to wonder, they came up with this original idea and they decided to have Hamlet soliloquy as the constant callback, to be or not to be. And I think part of Sam, Yaakov and Yitzchak is that it's about, are we human beings or not? What is our existence? Are we really human? Do we rise to the occasion to be or not to be? So even though it's constantly played as a joke and it's, it's the, it's the code word for hanky panky, 
but you can't deny that this is the title that they decided that the that the screenplay should have. It could have been other soliloquies, maybe less famous, but I think it is a challenge out there. Are you? Are we going to be, as you say, human? Are we going to be compassionate? Or are we, or are we going to accept? Are we going to not fight? Are we going to allow the worst parts of ourselves to erupt, to be or not to be? And 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 therefore, it seems that the screenwriters, whether they were aware of what Sam is saying or not, believe that this this principle of being the principle Shylock's soliloquy are are motifs to live by. Now Sam is saying that. Ultimately, what Shakespeare just meant by that was is that the Jew wanted to he, the Jew just wanted his pound of flesh, and then eventually Shakespeare gives him that. Shakespeare gives him his comeuppance, and he's the villain. And and I guess from a religious perspective, as a rabbi, I would say that even if you take it the way Lubitsch and Brooks want it to be, I, I, I my criticism not so much what Shakespeare thought. It's not necessarily finding greatness within the Jews. It's basically just saying, like like Mark Twain might have done in, in his famous essay, what what this is is rather, hey, we live. And as and because we live, we can't be treated like worse than animals. We have we we exist and therefore we we are human. But there's not necessarily anything positive other than that. And I think that much I, I agree with you whether we believe in intersectionality or not, I think it is important to recognize that there's a contribution of each type of, of society, of each of each types of society. And in that way, I would say, uh, you know, I, I can agree with you, Sam. But just remember, women were not included. Women were just kept barefoot, pregnant, and um, and loose. I mean, right. there's, there's, there's no, there's no um, redemption for Anne Dawson. She remains, she remains garbage. But, but Sam, are you, are you basically saying that to take Shakespeare and elevate any of the statements that he might make, you have to be an originalist and see them not only in context of the play, but also in context of the prejudice of Shakespeare himself. Sure, sure. Shakespeare, throw Dickens in while you're at it. Sure. In other words, in their times, they did not believe that uh, any um, body really has can be an adult male Christian unless they are. Everybody else is junk. But Sam, even before this film, Shakespeare is in the pantheon of greatness, right? So this is not a distinct criticism of this film. This is your. This is a criticism of anybody that puts Shakespeare on a pedestal. I, I'm just trying to make sure that people don't try to redeem him because of this phenomenal speech for freedom and suffrage. You know. Okay, now you said you had a problem with the character that Anne Bancroft plays. No, no, my problem is that she's uh, somebody who's vapid, who's kind of loose and has nothing redeeming other than, yeah, right, you know, whatever, whenever pants present themselves. Going yeah, that but, direction. Right, but that's, that's the plot device to get the Polish flyer connected to her. That okay. was... And you're correct. Sometimes it's the seamy side of our personality, the seamy side of what we do, the lies that we say that sometimes turn us into heroes. No, no, I, I think basically you're dealing here with a caricaturization, which is meant to just highlight a stereotype that um, you just don't get beyond. And I was, this is this is a Jew. And this is what a gay guy is. And this is what a woman is. And this is what a dog is. 
what a Nazi is. When you have a woman, the way she's presented in both the original and the remake, she is this extremely popular Polish starlet who is featured in all these magazines. And those people who become stars, who become famous among the masses, we know that that they basically can get caught up with their own glory. And many times, as we see, are always involved in extramarital affairs. That's fine. That that's a nice that's a nice stereotype. That's okay. I'm not saying anything other than that I see these stereotypes staring me in the face. So yeah. when I see a stereotype, I call it out. Why not? Okay. okay. So let's just get to the Nazi buffoon thing. Okay. With the and this is really why we called you in because Chaplin wrote in 1964 that had he known about the atrocities of the concentration camps, he would never have made his classic film, which Yitzchak is going to talk about, The Great Dictator, uh, where he plays, uh, basically he plays Adolf Hitler. Something that's so horrible, something that's so terrible, something that is so demonic, you cannot even sanction it by right. using humor. Sure, so I can talk I can talk about that. I mean, that's the uh, backlash that came up when the producers came up as well. Also Mel Brooks, right? Yes, yes, of course. Okay, so I mean, so the idea here is that um, basically humor is a genteel way of kicking somebody in the private, okay? If not worse. It's a genteel way, and maybe it's um, you feel a little bit guilty for saying something, so you say it in a disguised way. And the understanding of people who um, know the theory of humor is that when you get to something that's considered to be the ultimate atrocity, there's no need for kid gloves. There's no need to pretend to be Christian rather than a human being. And the vengeance for something like Nazis, you don't go around with kid gloves and you don't take something as holy as humor, if I can say that, because humor is something that touches the soul and talks about subtleties, and you don't apply it to something like Nazism. So laughing at the Nazis, with the Nazis, presenting as buffoons rather than horrible killers with machine guns is something that's um, probably not sanctioned among um, anybody who ever um, you know, came out of that hellhole. Right. So, but, so what do you feel, though? Do you, do you agree with that? Do I agree with that? Sure. I mean, I agree with critiquing people who um, have gloves on or, or take a, a modified approach dealing with certain atrocities, saying, no, it's not them. It could have been them. It shouldn't have been them. You have to excuse them. They did tshuva. His children learned them. They brock, whatever. That kind of stuff shouldn't apply. I was, I was just impressed. I was at a kinnis, actually, of my brother, and he said he was like really disturbed by the fact that um, the master butcher of Jerusalem decided to uh, to have a change of heart and actually converted and he was accepted and his kids were rabbis or whatever. And he said he was just thinking if Hitler came around and saying, okay, I changed my mind, I'd like to convert and move to New Square, would that work out? As a memorial candle whose job it is to carry the weight of the Holocaust for my uh, progenitors, yes, I'm offended in their name. Would you say, I'm going to ask before we get on to Yitzchak, uh, Yaakov and, and Yitzchak, do you think that the general sense is that all the Nazis are buffoons from this film? I think that there is a sense of terror, and it's actually an increased sense of terror over the original Lubitsch film. The Lubitsch film didn't really have a threat to anybody. What Mel Brooks and his um, co-filmmakers did was added a Jewish family that needs to escape. So it wasn't just about a bunch of Poles who want to actually act on the stage, and that was their only stake for getting out of Poland. They um, had actual Jews who they knew 
would be killed if they were found and were hiding in the theater. So they added that level to increase the tension and actually make it a little more poignant. That being said, the actual Nazis themselves were buffoonish in a way that the Lubitsch version didn't. The Lubitsch Nazis were much more of a banality of evil variety in that they were just normal people doing terrible things. And it was probably much more akin to what the Nazis actually were. But Mel Brooks, his entire idea was that in order to defang the Nazis, in order to rob them of their power, his idea was you can't let these people rule your psyches forever. And in order to make them powerless, he needed to make them buffoons. He did that in The Producers. He did that here. He did that in other places as well. It was his M.O. Also that they they can't rob me of my wanting to have fun. I still want to have fun, even when I'm getting killed. I want to have well, fun. Th- that also ties into the title. The name of the movie is To Be or Not to Be. It's Hamlet asking, should I live or should I die? And the notion that people needed to live and you need to go on with life was something that I'm pretty sure Lubitsch was playing with. Lubitsch meant it as, should I help? Should I do something or should I just kind of stand by and do nothing? And Shakespeare meant it, should I become a vengeful person myself and then be whatever a true Christian is supposed to be, or shall I remain a doormat? Maybe. I think the simple reading of Shakespeare is, should I kill myself or not? So I'm not 100% sure. I think I think there are readings into it that you can play, and that's what's great about Shakespeare, is that there are always levels, as well as with Lubitsch. There are always levels that you can read into Lubitsch. But with Mel Brooks, I think he was very clearly saying, we can't let the past, and we can't let specifically the bad people of the past rule us. Okay, but, you know, I, I think that, the the main buffoon is Colonel Earhart, right? Sid Rugman plays him in the original, and Charles Durning plays him in the in the remake. And Charles Durning really notches it up a level, the buffoonery. But both characters are shown to be not as necessarily efficient and as terrible as the other Nazis. I think there is a sense that they're, like you say, the banality of everyone else. Schultz, for example, you know, is shown to be completely humorless. Uh, Earhart is sort of like, you know, uh, the one who is, is, is sort of like a Nazi who's taking advantage. I don't know if he's necessarily the symbol of all Nazis. He's the symbol of a, a, a type of, of, of Nazi who, who, who has been graced with power in this position in Warsaw, in both conceptions, like the version of the ridiculous Nazi. But it's not necessarily saying they're all just silly and ridiculous. Yaakov is right. It's, it's, it's Brooks's MO that he constantly talks about, that this is the way we fight them. I'll ask both of you, and Yitzchak and I spoke about this off pod. Do you think that the fact that Brooks is a Jew and part of the tribe, does that give him any more right to sort of like define how the Nazis need to be dealt with? I I think Mel Brooks does have a leg to stand on, and it's not just him. I think all of us know Jews who have told Holocaust jokes. It's not a foreign idea. So the fact that these exist kind of prove that we aren't really going to be able to pass judgment on this. It is something that people deal with in different ways. And one of the ways is through mockery. And if Mel Brooks is going to mock the Germans and mock the Nazis, it's kind of his right. And I don't think it's just his right as an American. I think it's his right as a Jew. And it's our right as organized Judaism to dump on him. 
again, one of the things I think why I, I think it's somewhat of a non-issue is because for non-religious Jews, and I think the, the Pew Demographic Report indicated that most Jews felt a connection to the Holocaust as opposed to God or religion or going to services or having a bar mitzvah. The Holocaust was for in America almost the the the, the sacred token of what it meant to be a Jew. I am all for moving beyond that. And we are so taken by this, and this is our stake, that it's almost like, hey, this is what almost defines us. It defines this day. It defines this generation. This is our genocide. Enough already of that. Let's move on to golf. Or Torah, or Chesed, or making the world better. I agree with that. I'd rather see a Judaism that's that's about life and Torah than just a, a Kaddish and a Yisker and a Yartzeit, and that's that's all. I couldn't see Schindler's List because, to me, I, I, I always imagining Spielberg is behind the camera saying, let's make the bones look more uh, obvious coming through the skin or do something. like. However, Gnukshoit, if you want to make fun of it, fine. You, you want to view the Nazis in humor, fine. The truth is we've got more, as you say, it's not just golf. We have a lot of important things that we need to be involved with. And I think the more we're schlepped into this, the more, the more narrower our scope becomes and, and the, and the, and the less important our influence to the greater humanity is. I remember as a child, when I was still in public school, I wrote an essay about World War II in film. And, uh, I, I think I touched on to be or not to be, although I hadn't seen the film at the time. I had seen The Great Dictator. I had seen several other films. And, you know, there was one quote that's kind of related to all this, which was from 1940. It was the His Girl Friday. And I actually, in that essay, looked at a different way that how they didn't realize, you know, they how bad Hitler was at the time, which reflects somewhat what Chaplin was talking about, that in, in His Girl Friday, which is, you know, taken from the front page that that Ben Heck and Charles MacArthur wrote, uh, I think in the late 20s, when it was remade in 1940, they added a line that was not in the original, where Cary Grant says, take Hitler and stick him on the funny pages. Again, at that point, they didn't. They knew that he was a bigot. They knew that he was a dictator. They knew that he was a, a horrific and, and a person, but they didn't realize just quite how bad he was able to actualize his evil. And so they could say something like that. But I think Hecht, with you know his very uh, indomitable spirit and, and very strong Jewish identity, took that as as a statement, I, I'm sure that Hecht added that, although I could be wrong, but that's just my feeling. And I see a certain trajectory that happened through the history of those of film in that time of humor vis-a-vis making a pastiche of Hitler. We see the earliest kind of pastiche possibly of Hitler was right after he took power in Germany, the Marx Brothers had Duck Poop, which uh, you know was making fun of dictators in general, and it seems that somewhat Groucho's character was supposed to be Hitler, but it was not obvious, and it was somewhat ambiguous. By the time the war started in Europe, but had not yet started in America, was when things started to change where 
uh, Chaplin, you know, was so busy making his film The Great Dictator, and he was so careful with it because he had a tremendous fear of censorship, particularly because America had not yet entered the war. Once the war actually broke out, meaning, I mean, this was also the war had started in Europe, but after Pearl Harbor and once America entered the war, now with this film, to be or not to be, they were able to talk about Hitler openly and to mention him by name and also reflect back on the worry of censorship because that's a big theme in both versions of the film is is the concern with censorship. This is a common theme that's all throughout history, this worry that if we're just on the brink of something, it'll be a fictional dramatization that's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back and that worry about that. And it's really not founded, meaning Hitler was going to invade Poland with or without this theater troupe making this movie. But then Brooks takes it to that next level that I think is unnecessary, meaning in Lubitsch's film, they're dealing with something that was immediate, you know, that at that point, already they had gotten away from to a certain extent that they, they had broken through that change in the, it, it, because they were in the war and they could actually go out and the same thing. Daffy Duck was, was able to make fun of Hitler and Superman was fighting the Japs and this and that. And all of these, the, the dam had been broken by that time. So what, what do you, what, what monster do you think Brooks was fighting? It's like- Brooks, I think, you know, that he saw that there was, a rightward turn in the early 80s with the election of Reagan and everything, I think he was worried that he would be censored, you know, whether it was issues of obscenity or discussions of race or things that he had done for years before that. Okay, in other words, the type of taboos that he broke in Blazing Saddles, uh, using the N-word, talking, you know, directly, those flatulence, all that stuff, Brooks was worried that society was going to clamp down on. And therefore, yeah, maybe there'll be a return to the 1950s, something like that. And so, and I think he took it too far, you know, to, to say, go and say, kind of, he's making the statement that all censors are Nazis, and that's, I think, overblown and unnecessary. But I kind of feel that that was the statement that he was trying to make. I think you've zeroed in on two things which most casual viewers would never have noticed. Number one is the the string that leads from duck soup to to be or not to be. Uh, with stops in the Stooges. And I also think, I think you might have a point about Brooks railing against the self-censorship. The quote that you had from Chaplin's autobiography was how Chaplin regretted making The Great Dictator after finding out what had happened. Uh, Mo Howard said that that was his most favorite of all of the 200 shorts that they did for Columbia and that he was most proud of making fun of Hitler. And he felt that uh, it was almost like he did a mitzvah. All these points are very interesting. Yaakov, you wanted to talk about the uh, both of these films and talk about why you, you already mentioned before that Brooks put on the table extermination, actual, besides the Jewish actor in the troupe, actual Jews that were in danger. He also put in to the film something which couldn't have been done in the 40s, which is an obvious gay character and the persecution that the homosexuals had to suffer. Why else do you think this film is worth seeing? 
Oh, there are a few reasons. The first is, as the kids would say, it's a rich text. You know, the fact that we're bouncing around ideas why Mel Brooks might have been interested in making this speaks to its, um, its fascination. It's a fascinating movie. I think that there are a couple of reasons why he wanted to make it uh, that are beyond what uh, what Yitzhak said, which are, um, first of all, he was, at the time, he wasn't as um, directing as many movies he was producing, and he was looking for something that was commercially viable. I mean, this was to make money. But it's also because Mel Brooks was, I think, really making these movies for Jews, or maybe more broadly, he was making these movies for all potential Holocaust victims, because as you said, it does include the prominent gay character. But that's kind of different than what Spielberg was doing, for example. Spielberg did not make Schindler's List for the Jews. Jews knew about the Holocaust. There wasn't a need to educate them. He really made it for everybody else. Roberto Benigni, on the other hand, really made Life is Beautiful for himself. When the movie came out, when Life is Beautiful came out, there was a report that Spielberg went to see it and walked out because he was offended that Roberto Benigni was using the Holocaust as a star vehicle, which was kind of an insanely bad taste. And you know it's in bad taste because Jerry Lewis had the opportunity, you know, Jerry Lewis had the opportunity to do it. He made this movie called The Day the Clown Cried, in which he played a a clown in a concentration camp, and he decided never to release it. He at one point said, you know what, this is a really terrible idea. But that's not what Mel Brooks was doing. Mel Brooks was doing this because he wanted to give power back to people, and he thought it was a a really commercial, viable comedy. And I think that's kind of the real place where he succeeds, because the 1983 To Be or Not To Be is a funnier movie than the Lubitsch version. The Lubitsch version is overall, I think, better. I think it's braver, as Yitzhak said. It's got this beautiful black and white photography, and it's smarter in its satire. You know, using polls, polls in quote, as a stand-in for Jews was probably one of Lubitsch's best innuendos, one of his best double entendres. And that was very clever. But Mel Brooks made it much broader. And I think aside from Anne Bancroft, who really was not as good as Carol Lombard, everybody was operating at a much higher pitch and was much funnier, especially Charles Durning. And Charles Durning really was just giving it his all. And every little movement he made was hilarious. The way he um, just turned around, put his hat on a hook that wasn't there and the hat just falls. It was a really great comic performance. And that's kind of what he was going for. He wanted to make a really funny movie. And in that way, he succeeded. But that's also why Mel Brooks took on the part, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but he took on the part of the actor who eventually had to portray Hitler. And in the Lubitsch version, it wasn't him who was doing that. There was, it was separate. It wasn't, it wasn't the Jack Benny character. It wasn't was, Jack it was a- Benny. Right. But, but Mel Brooks wanted to be the one that puts on the little mustache and bulges out his eyes because that would get the laugh. He recognized that that was the comic potential there. So it was, it was a funnier movie and that's what Mel Brooks did well, you know. So I give him a lot of credit for doing that in addition to the fact that he gave it much more dramatic stakes by actually having, um, a Jewish family and a gay character and doing stuff that you couldn't get away with so overtly in 1942. So, so Yaakov, let me push back a little bit here. I'm happy that you gave the props to Lubitsch's beautiful film. And in fact, some of the, the the best shots and dialogue are lifted 
almost word for word. But when it's not word for word, it's overemphasized. I, 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 I really believe that you leave something that's a masterpiece alone, especially if you're going to almost remake it. Now, what Brooks does, and, and I, I could probably list five or six examples, but let me give you one or two. As I said, part of the drama is the Polish uh, lover ends up becoming an, a British agent in order to find the uh, the conspirator. So how is it that the troop becomes motivated to be this impossible mission force? So Lubitsch does it in such a beautiful way. He parachutes into enemy territory. He is chased, shot at. He tries to get to the bookstore where he's supposed to give over the information, but he can't. The next thing you see in the Lubitsch film is Carol Lombard, the actress, going to the bookstore. Like, what's going on? Why is she doing this? How did she come there? When when Lubitsch cuts back to her home, you see there's a figure in the bed. But the hair, the coiffed hair in the bed could easily have been her husband, the Jack Benny character, who has very similar hair. So you're not even sure what's going on. And it's only as the scene develops that you realize that who's in the bed, you discover it when you're so surprised that Jack Benny playing the, her husband opens up the door. And then you figure out that he had been running away. He'd escaped. He had come to her. But Lubitsch and his screenwriters expect the audience to get it and to actually enjoy figuring out these these visual clues as opposed to what Brooks does, is he actually shows you that he's in bed there and he almost has to tell you everything. And I think that's true even in the, the scene where Jose Ferrer and Brooks meet each other and uh, Soletsky, played by Ferrer, realizes that he's been taken not to Gestapo headquarters, but he's been taken to some sort of place where he's being fooled by a bunch of actors. In the original... Soletsky figures it out by the anger that the actor shows when he discovers his wife's being a strumpet and being duplicitous and whoring around. And the anger that he has is the tip-off. What Brooks does is he has the character turn his chair around, and you can see emblazoned on the back of the chair, Bronsky Theater, Nasty Nazis. Oh, now I got it. So instead of the character figuring it out based on something doesn't spell right here, it has to be all in your face. And I think throughout the film, Yaakov, this 1983 version shows you how Brooks and his producers and his director and his writers did not trust their audience to catch the subtleties and the beauty of the original. Even the famous line that I referred to before, what he's doing, what he did to Shakespeare, we're doing now to Poland. Charles Durning pushes his hand in as if, oh, you get it? We are effing them, right? Here's the push right there. Well, what can I say? Comedy is subjective. Comedy is subjective. And I, I was totally taken, but I understand what you're saying. And there's an argument to be made, though, that if you're not going to have the Lubitsch touch and you're not going to work with the layers of subtlety that he brought to his 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 work, then go in the opposite direction. 
make it a farce. On to what you said, he basically, in the original, there's a very lovely little character called Bronsky who happens to have a resemblance to Hitler. And that's his only chashivus, right? And, and, and there's this idea that the ensemble run by Dobish, Dobish is the brains in the original, and every one of these characters is part of an ensemble. And it's true, the main, the main persons are the, the husband and wife, the Turas, because the Jack Benny character has to play Earhart and Soletsky, and she has to seduce. She has to basically be the sexual attraction, which she has been using, as Sam has pointed out, most of her adult life, probably. But she's using it for the sake of the cause of their freedom and, 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 and hopefully saving those the rest of the Polish underground. Whereas in, in Brooks's film, Mel does everything. He even even when they are chasing Soletsky, he's the one who says, "Hey, get the spotlight." Mel Brooks appropriated so much. He was such a hazer. In the original, Jack Benny is clearly great, but he isn't chest thumping and saying, "Hey, <laughs> look, I'm doing everything." He plays the vain, cuckolded husband who's extremely jealous, but also says, "Look, if we've got to kill him, I'll kill him." And, and you actually believe he's a hero. In other words, it's an ensemble piece with everybody doing their best, despite their weaknesses of personality. In the Brooks film, <laughs> it's like Mel grabbing everything. He's got. He's got to be. I think you're giving him enough credit. You're not. You're. You're forgetting. He had George Gaines in it. You know, George Gaines, who was so good as the soap actor in Tootsie, right? Great. Uh, he's fantastic in it. And George Weiner, who he used as, and James Hawk, who played the, the, the gay character, Sasha, and of course, Christopher Lloyd and Charles Durning, they all had, they all make an impression in this movie. They all get laughs. And Louis, Louis Stadlin, who played Lupinski, the Jewish character, I thought was really effective. He gave much a be- better- I agree with you. He was much better than Felix Bressart. I think part of it was he could play a Jew much better. I thought one of the only original Brooks things that I sort of laughed at was, and Sam, you tell me if you thought this was funny, when the initial air raid occurs that the Christian character crosses himself and Stadlin does a mug and dove on his chest. I thought that was, I thought that was funny. That's, that, that's Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks is broad. He is he is large. He was reined in pretty famously by Gene Wilder on Young Frankenstein, which is why a lot of people appreciate it, even when they don't appreciate uh, a usual Mel Brooks movie. But he goes big, and that that is his style. I saw that, by the way, as a, as a knock against Jews. Can't even do it. Like, a cross is so simple. This guy's going with sugar, making triangles. <laughs> I, I, I want to just mention, you know, that that the musical part of this film, the original movie, Sam, there was no music. Brooks fancies himself a song and dance man, right? Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, he's not. Did you think all that music, uh, did that enhance the film to you at all? Well, the first number where he takes basically a joke, one-liner from the Lubitsch movie, and makes it into a whole song, that's a pretty good song. And that has pretty good lyrics where he's talking about taking a piece of, of France and a piece of Hungary, you know, and it, that, that, that worked well. The later song that comes where it is uh, a quasi drag number and he's trying to. And how about protect- the, ridiculous, the ridiculous burlesque 
rockets they were right yeah i thought it worked it was it was obviously trying to be for 1983 very transgressive transgressive very shocking and come on cabaret cabaret did that like 20 times yeah but but the notion of having a guy being dancing with a guy ninochka was remade in the 50s as a musical but it was updated it wasn't supposed to be happening in the 30s anymore so I think when you can take Lubitsch as perfection, Lubitsch touched, but update it to just remake it. It could have been updated and and, and perhaps been a, a comment on the world of the 1980s. In the 1980s, in the 1970s, the idea of neo-Nazism was still real. It's still real nowadays. If we were to make, if, we're, if somebody were to remake um, to be or not to be, and essentially just use the exact same plot in the exact same time period, people would comment, the media would say, this is obviously a commentary on the rise of right-wing fascism in America. It's not like these issues go away. So I don't see there's anything terribly wrong with with still kicking the Nazis. If he wants to kick the Nazis, it's what he's good at. It obviously made for an easier sell. Just he could have said to somebody, I'm going to be Hitler. And they would have said, here's your money. Here, go make the movie. So I, I see it as a, it's not a bad thing. You don't always have to transpose something to make the same comment about a different a different play, time and place. Nazis are, are still around. There's still bad people out there who believe in Hitler. So what's the harm? What's the harm in... in- okay, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't considered it in that way, Yaakov. But I, I guess... It's hard for me, and this gets back to what I was telling Sam earlier today. Sentimentality is easy to wrap a movie in. Humor and subtlety is much harder. To me, to be or not to be Brooks version, although my I was crying when that Jewish woman said, Ich kennisht, ich nicht, like when she saw the the Nazis in the audience, it, it was it was moving. I realized right away that this was the type of sentimentality that I don't think Lubitsch would have ever allowed himself. Let me give you the classic example. Mutki the dog has to run for the airplane. The dog is running because the the, the German shepherds are chasing him. And Mutki, come on, Mutki, come on, Mutki. When you see the original, you realize this is a fantasy because the, the crematoria, the ashes, the destruction of, of, of European Jewry and so many countries says it was a fantasy. It didn't work. We fought Hitler. Oh, yeah, we beat Hitler, but look at the price. Lubitsch's film is, is a fable, a fantasy that you realize was a wish, a possibility of to be or not to be. Because you know that basically, <laughs> even if these guys did get out, the truth was the world was crushed. There was death. There was destruction. The interesting thing is, is that as you say, Brooks, 40 years later, hmm, I'm, I'm not with Sam saying that it's we have you have no right to make fun of them. But the truth is, OK, you got out five Jews and one gay guy and one dog. What about everybody else? So to me, Yaakov, it's sort of like it's, it's so myopic. He should have left it alone, not because of what Chaplin said. It's like, OK, you see this great victory. OK, we saved these people. We saved seven people. We saved 10 people. To me, Tarantino, to me, did something more uplifting with Inglorious Bastards than this. That was a revenge fantasy. That was something. I can talk about Inglorious Bastards for a long time. 
and Inglorious Bastards, they they imagine a world where where Hitler is killed. It's not just let's let's pretend that we're trying to kill Hitler as a way that we can escape. And Glorious Bastards actually beautifully using very similar imagery to to be or not to be. It happens in the theater and they set it on fire. It, but Inglorious Bastards really isn't about Jews, though. Inglorious Bastards is about movies. That's the thing. All Quentin Tarantino movies are about movies. And the message he was saying was that the Jews won the war because their filmmaking survived. Hollywood was the one that conquered the world, whereas the Nazi film propaganda units never made any impact. I think the stuff about Hitler being killed is in potentially bad taste. But I, I have to give all credit to Quentin Tarantino. You know, he, he moved to Israel, not, uh, and before I did. So I am, you know, I'm, I'm in awe of him. And I know that he made everything with the best of intentions. And to me, seeing that is up, you know, that it's, it's a, it's, it's a false kite. It's a fantasy. It's funny you say that because I, I guess again, I'm comparing it to the ones that came before. It's much more of a cohesive movie that is a real story much better than Chaplin, who is just using like, this is an excuse to do his pantomime and playing with, with the globe and all the, and, and, and the Stooges using as an excuse to, to show a funny map. This was a much more realistic movie to me to be or not to be both of them. Certainly the, the original were much more of an actual story. I think I, I, the original, I think, what I was amazed by was I actually thought it was better than The Great Dictator. I thought it was a better film because it was much more like something that you, it was, there was much less suspension of disbelief in this than there was. Look, it was, it was, it was, it was an incredible blend of horror, comedy, pettiness, jealousy. Every line is almost perfect. Yeah, there's and, there's nothing extra in there. Chaplin every has- single right, and and which again, this you're right. I I I can't deny a person's right to make money, but if you want, and it's and it's worth seeing both just to have a discussion about it. But if you're going to pick one, I think you got to go with, with the original. If you want to see the greatest of Brooks, this is not great Brooks. But if you want to see the greatest of Benny, this is possibly Benny's greatest film. And, and it's funny because neither of them were there. They, both uh, both Brooks and Benny always are pretty much the same character, except in these movies. This is, these are the two movies where they do get to show their range. And that's why I don't think Brooks was making this as much for the money as much as he's making it for the prestige of this is this, his list. Yeah, the famous story about Jack Benny that he told about this movie is when his father went to see it. In the first scene... Jack Benny does one of his half-hearted Heil Hitlers. Right. And and his father was horrified and walked out That's because he, he just couldn't believe that his son was doing such a thing. He didn't understand that he wasn't actually playing that character. And Bancroft, Sam thought that she was, she did a great job. Like, I, I agree with you. I think, again, I'm happy for, for the two of them that they got to do a, a movie together. I told Yitzchak, I thought the best part of their interaction was the very end that that was a mel brooks shtick that was what you expect from frank tashlin from mel brooks you break the fourth wall completely expected from jack benny always broke the fourth wall and he didn't do it in this movie ever sam you might remember that in the beginning of the film they're talking about who should have top billing and it turns out that there is a poster where 
his wife is not only below him, but is actually in parentheses. Yeah, sure. And at the end of the film, where you basically break the fourth wall, hey, this has all been a movie, this is a play, everybody who's clapping the audience, clap for all the characters. And you can see when Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft come out, Anne Bancroft's name is in parentheses. And 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 they point down to the parentheses and Mel Brooks magically shifts them away. To me, that was a Mel Brooks type of shtick that, you know, was 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 cute and nice and reflected the love that they had to each other. And also him him, him telling the pilot that he can understand. He can understand how he fell in love with her. He's Michael. You're right, which which Jack Benny does not do in the original. One of the things that's that again, they, he doesn't trust his audience. Remember when Mel Brooks says, "As this was the greatest performance I've done in my life, and nobody was there to see it." Mm-hmm. Now that is so implied in the original, you don't need to say it. He he saves lives by acting like these two characters. But it was implied. It was implied for drama. It was implied for character in the original. Mel Brooks wanted a laugh. That's the only reason he threw it in. It said, because this will get a laugh. And it did. It got a laugh from me. It did. The rabbi playing golf on Shabbos. And now he can't. It's it's classic humor. Exactly. Yaakov, you think it's a laugh you wanted, not adulation or um, appreciation. No, the, the, the fact that he wanted the adulation was the joke. And he makes the joke overt. Like he's, he's, he's spoofing himself. Yeah, but, or, or he's just making it part of the character that the character's so pathetic that he wants a laugh. But it's, it's, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that maybe Jack Benny would have done with a little, you know, like head turns, yeah. but he didn't. And, uh, I, I thought it played. I think there's a lot to love about both movies. Honestly, they're, they're really the, the Lubitsch version is beautiful in a way that the Mel Brooks movie is simply not. And it, it really uses Carol Lombard in a way that the other, the other movies couldn't, you can't touch that. It, you know, it was, it's, it's unfortunate, of course, her death to happen, but I think this was, might've been one of her best performances. And I, I've seen her in, 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 in a lot of films because again, she really is able to, to balance being uh, in a way, a, a, an empty a bubblehead, but serious, passionate, caring. By the way, let me just say one more thing. I think it's Robert Stack's best film. <laughs> Well, that's airplane. Come on. Uh, maybe it's not his best movie. There's an easy argument to make that to be or not to be is better than airplane. But his performance in airplane is incredibly fun. I'm remembering Robert Stack from so many wooden performances in the untouchables. Yeah, for sure. Here you can actually see he's, he's, he's laughing. He's involved. You can see how in love he is. And I think he, I think again, compared to Tim Matheson, I think Stack is, uh, I think Stack outdoes that. And you sort of are rooting for him in a way. All right, guys, look, I think we've definitely, uh, whether it's a thumbs up. I think the better one to see is the Lubitsch version. It's, it's, you know, by simply checking boxes, the superior version. But if you want a really fascinating case of authorship studies, watch both and compare how the same material can be treated by two different people. I'm not usually a fan of newer movies but I or remakes, but I did appreciate the remake, but I definitely like the original better. But I, I did not dislike the remake. I, I did enjoy it. I think the remake is very funny. It's, I think it's funnier. 
Sam, so are you sticking to your guns here that... No, I'll say maybe the original one was something I would have wanted to watch. Would you say that generally stay away from when it comes to the horror of the Nazis? It's something that 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 should not necessarily be the role of humor. No, nah, I just I'm it's I mean, maybe because I have that uh, preconception. I didn't find it funny. I found it farcical and farces. I got that from my grandkids. OK, pile myself and watch your step. On the way out. Thanks to everybody here that was here that was here for so long. Yaakov, it was a pleasure. Take care, everybody. Have a good night. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.